0: The sermon text for today is Matthew, chapter 16, verses 1 through 12, and that will be found on pages 821 and 822 in your Pew Bible. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and to test him they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning... It will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand, and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand, and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I do not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.
1: You didn't believe me last week when I told you we were done with 15. Let's pray together. All scripture is inspired by God. And so it's profitable, and it must be preached. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, you say, Father, so that your children would be equipped for every good work, adequate for every good work. And because your word is inspired, whether we are preaching or hearing it or reading it, we are to remember that we do it in the presence of the God who inspired it, and in the presence of the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is its great subject. And so we want to do those things faithfully, and we depend upon the same Spirit now who inspired this text, that he would be our teacher, that he would be the Christ-revealer, that he would be the Christ-applier, the sanctifier, and the one who causes the as yet unborn to the kingdom to be born again. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you, you wouldn't necessarily know it from our snail's pace, but we have reached a very important uh, juncture in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 16. And our passage this morning is uh, significant in a, for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, it's the, it's the end of Jesus' ministry in Galilee in Matthew's Gospel. Now, Galilee, if you remember, is in the north. And. Jerusalem's in the south, and up to this point, and really our passage, once you get to the end of verse 12, that's the end of Jesus's ministry in Galilee until chapter 28, when he returns after his resurrection and meets with his disciples and then gives the great commission. So Matthew's gospel ends in Galilee with the risen Lord. So that's the first uh, reason it's significant. But the the second sig- significant feature of this uh, passage is that Jesus is leaving, is why he's leaving Galilee. And he's leaving Galilee. He's turning now toward Jerusalem. And that's the movement in Matthew's gospel. It's the movement in Jesus' ministry. And he is moving uh, toward uh, the cross, therefore. And what... What is particularly helpful to me about our passage is the way that it captures a theme that we are going to see with increasing clarity uh, over the the balance of Matthew's gospel, and that theme is Jesus' isolation. His isolation, not just from his enemies, his opponents, like the Pharisees and Sadducees. It's a very interesting passage because you have two episodes. You have a, an exchange in verses 1 through 4 between our Lord and the Pharisees and Sadducees, people we would, we would understand as Jesus' opponents. And then he has another exchange in verses 5 through 12. Reflecting on the first exchange, he has a second exchange with his disciples, his guys. And what's interesting is very prominently in both, you see the isolation of Jesus. And this is as he's turning to fulfill his mission and his ministry. We're going to see it even more dramatically in next week's passage, um, starting in verses 13, uh, verse 13. But friends, neither one of these groups Understands Jesus' mission. Neither one does. We expect him to be isolated from his opponents. We're a little thrown off, more than a little thrown off, when Jesus seems to be in the midst of his disciples, whom he's invested in now uh, nearly three years, and they don't understand the most basic thing about his ministry. In fact, I think that's one of the things that's underscored by uh, Matthew's very graphic and and uh, painfully so, right, account of how, uh, how dunderheaded the disciples really are. They sound like hobbits, okay, wondering where the next meal is going to come from when Jesus has just got done uh, opening up his ministry uh, and the meaning of his ministry by, by talking about the sign of Jonah to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus is isolated, friends, because the cross isolates him. And Jesus' ministry is headed toward Calvary. The distance, we don't think of it this way, but our passage shows us this. The distance between Jesus, when it comes to the cross, okay? When it comes to the cross, the distance between Jesus' opponents and Jesus' disciples is not nearly as great as the distance between all of humanity and the cross, Because the cross is the great leveler. That's what we're going to see about the sign of Jonah. It is, he's speaking about his death, as we're going to see. The cross is the great leveler. Jesus is isolated. He's utterly alone. He alone knows the necessity of the cross. He alone knows the beauty of the cross. He alone, he's all alone in his conviction of the necessity of his self-sacrifice. He's all utterly alone uh, in his conviction of the beauty of what is going to be accomplished by the cross. And in his exchange with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he compares his ministry uh, to, he calls his ministry the sign of Jonah, which is the second time he's done this in Matthew's gospel, as we'll see in a minute. And when he does that, right on the cusp of Peter's great confession, as we're going to see next week at Caesarea Philippi, what he's doing is he's showing us how he understands his ministry. And he is giving us the interpretive key for how we're to understand his ministry. And so this morning, I want to think with you about three aspects of this sign of Jonah that Jesus uses to explain himself and his ministry to us. Uh, Three headings, uh, the meaning of the sign, the purpose of the sign, and the power of the sign. And the meaning of the sign is that it is the sign, the cross, is the sign that we have been given. Its purpose is that it's been given as a sign that we are to read and learn from. And its power is that it is a sign that reads us. So let's think first about the meaning of the sign. What is the sign of Jonah? Well, what you have to notice first is what it isn't, and it's not the sign that the Pharisees and the Sadducees demand. you see how they join forces? We're going to reflect in a minute here about how, maybe more than a minute, we're going to reflect soon, how about that, later today, about how uh, astonishing uh, that alliance between the Pharisees and Sadducees is. And how we can possibly understand it. But I want you to notice that they come to him, according to Matthew, and they ask for a sign. But it's not, this is not the neutrality of somebody who is genuinely and sincerely wanting to know the truth about Jesus. The word that is used uh, to, for test here is the same word that's used to describe what Satan does to Jesus when he's in the wilderness, And they're asking for a sign from heaven. In other words, they're asking a question, expecting him to fail and not wanting him to show them the sign that they're asking for. And they're asking for a powerful, undeniable, supernatural, overwhelming, you know, no room for confusion kind of sign from heaven. In other words, I mean, the arrogance of it is just breathtaking that here they are and they're saying, heaven, bring it. Now, you know what? I totally get that. I talked that way when I was a non-Christian. I did. Because I didn't understand what I was saying. And neither do they. And Jesus comes right back. We saw it last week. Uh, They ought to know, right? You throw Jesus a fastball and he hits it back hard. And he ch- makes two charges against them. First of all, he he charges them with spiritual illiteracy. He says you guys, <laughs> like like if if you actually got a sign from heaven, you could read it. He says, sure, you can read the weather. You look up to the heavens, and you can tell uh, that if it's if it's. Red in the evening, the weather will be such and such the next day. If it's red in the morning, the weather is going to be another way later in the day. But that's not what's important. You're utterly illiterate when it comes to knowing the signs of the times. Otherwise, you wouldn't have asked me for that sign. Otherwise, you wouldn't be skeptical about me because you would have been paying attention to the whole story of my ministry up until now. That's the first charge, that they can't even read what's set before them. And the second charge is a charge of spiritual adultery, and that's in verse four. He says, he identifies them this way. It's very strong. This is very strong language. He calls them an evil and adulterous generation. In other words, their motivation is not good. It's wicked. Their motivation is in, in asking, in approaching Jesus, is not that they would obtain from him information or insight that would lead them into greater faithfulness to God it is so that they might be reinforced in their unfaithfulness this is Jesus reading their hearts now friends it's very important uh, for those of you who are not yet in Christ and who raise objections against Jesus and who stand with the arms of your heart folded against him waiting for him to you know as it were prove himself to you it is very very important for you to see the way Jesus evaluates people who are like that. It's not neutral. It sounds neutral when you do that. I'm just waiting for proof. But Jesus says it's hostility toward him. Friends, what else do you need? What greater proof do you need of Jesus' claim to lordship? What greater proof could he give you? What more could he show you than that cross? You have enough already. So Jesus says to them, No sign is going to be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. And Jesus now, notice, Jesus doesn't deny them a sign. He just denies them a sign of their choosing. They don't get to decide. Oh, my goodness, how important is that? We don't dictate to God. We don't dictate to Jesus. We talk about Jesus, whether we're skeptics or whether we're just moralists. We talk to him like he is to do our bidding. Friends, he's the Lord of the universe. Everything in the universe has been put in subjection under his feet. This is the living God who breathed out the entire universe just with the breath of his mouth, Psalm 33 says. And we dictate to him, no, no. He says he'll give him a sign. It's the sign of Jonah. Now, this is the second time Jesus has spoken about the sign of Jonah and compared himself to Jonah. If you go back with me to chapter 12, turn there, verses 39 through 41, Matthew 12. It on, starts on page 817 in your pew Bible. Really, a kind of a surprising comparison, right? Because Jonah was not a very good guy. <laughs> and yet, Jesus uh, compares himself to Jonah, he, something greater than Jonah. There's something about the, the movement in Jonah's story that Jesus says there's a resemblance to his ministry, but then Jesus places himself above Jonah and says, Something greater than Jonah is here. Look at this. And it's the same language. Notice, verse 39 But he answered them, an evil An adulterous generation, same language from uh, chapter 16, seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jesus doesn't play with those who play games with him. He just doesn't. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man, Jesus referring to himself, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, The men of Nineveh, those were the people to whom Jonah went, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And that's what Jesus is saying again in chapter 16. He's saying the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. Now, what does that mean? What is he saying? Well, I think there are three elements To the sign of Jonah, that we have to get straight. Overall, right, it is the story of Jesus' death. It is back in chapter 12, that was the first uh, open prediction of Jesus' death in the gospel. And here, right before we get to Peter's confession in chapter 16, Jesus is reaffirming it again. And it is the reason he's doing it is it's such an upside down sign. And he's trying to give us corrective lenses to understand his ministry. And the sign of Jonah, there are three aspects that surround his death, that surround the ministry that Jesus has. And the first is that like Jonah, but far more than Jonah, Jesus' ministry will be a ministry that calls for repentance. It calls for repentance, but a much greater repentance. Right? Jonah was sent by the Lord into Nineveh to call the Assyrian capital to repent before the God of Israel. But much more now will Jesus call not just Assyria but all the nations to repentance. A much greater repentance and and in fact to put himself uh, as the one who will be the object of that repentance to be he will call everyone to repent in reference to him as the one who will stand between sinners and the judgment of God. Jonah's message was not that great. It didn't call for as deep a repentance. Secondly, by comparing his ministry to Jonah's, Jesus is reminding us that his ministry is going to be defined by reluctance but a very different kind of reluctance. Remember how the book of Jonah opens. The Lord sends, calls Jonah and sends him to Nineveh to cry out against that great city. Why did the Lord send Jonah? Why did he want uh, Jonah to go to Nineveh? Well, we, we know for sure when we read the end of the book of Jonah, which ends with a question from the Lord to Jonah, saying, should I not have compassion on this great city? In other words, Jonah's ministry is the story of the reluctance of God for sinners to come under his judgment. But unlike Jonah's story, the one he sends is willing to go. Much greater than Jonah. There's a much greater reluctance on the part of Jesus, but it's in the opposite direction of Jonas, right? Jesus is unwilling not to go. Jesus is unwilling that, that the people to whom he ministers not be saved. The father was unwilling to spare the son, but gave him up for sinners. The son is unwilling to spare himself. And Jesus's ministry is going to be defined by this great Reluctance that sinners would perish. That's why he's going to say in verse twenty one later on in this passage. Right? Look, you go ahead and look at sixteen twenty one. From that time, this is summarizing Jesus' statements uh, to his disciples, his teaching. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he notice this. He must go to Jerusalem and that and and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. Must be killed on the third day and must be raised. Jesus is unwilling for these things not to happen. And then finally, by comparing his ministry to that of Jonah, Jesus is saying that his ministry will be defined by a greater death and a greater resurrection. In both, he will exceed Jonah. Jonah didn't literally die and wasn't literally raised. He was just brought down right in the, in the great fish to the bottom of the ocean, to the roots of the earth, as it says in chapter 2 of Jonah, and then, or the roots of the mountains. And then he's raised from that place and then spit out on the shore. But Jesus will actually be buried in the heart of the earth. Jesus will actually die, and Jesus will actually rise from the dead. So the sign that the Pharisees and Sadducees have demanded is a sign of power that would be unmistakable. But the sign that Jesus says they're going to get is a sign of repentance, a sign of reluctance, and a sign of death and resurrection. The sign of... That heaven gives is a son who gives himself. That is a much greater sign. The sign of Jonah is the sign of four gifts. Have you ever thought about this? God gives Jesus to us four times. Not once, but four times. Have you ever thought about this? The first time God gives uh, Jesus to us is in the incarnation. And that's how Jesus gives himself to us in the Incarnation. The second way that God gives Jesus to us is in his crucifixion. He gives him on the cross. He gives him into human life in the Incarnation. Then he gives him on the cross as our substitute for our sins. And Jesus gives himself away there. That's two. But there's a third, right? The third gift uh, of Jesus to the world Is when the Father raises Jesus from the dead and gives the risen Jesus back to us, and Jesus also. By his authority, takes his life up again, John 10: 17 and 18, and gives himself back to us. Amazing. overturning the world's rejection of Jesus, God raises him from the dead and gives him back to the world. But even then, the giving of God of this great sign from heaven, the sign from Jonah, isn't over, because for every Christian, what has happened is that we have come under the hearing of the gospel. And Jesus and the Father have given Jesus to us again in the offer of the gospel. Friends, if you're a Christian today, it is because God in His sovereign grace has given His Son to you at least four times. Four times. A fourfold gift. Now what's the meaning of that sign What's its purpose? What are we supposed to read out of that sign? That's our second our second point, the sign. It's the sign we're given to read because that sign has a purpose. And that purpose is revealed in two ways. Jesus, the first way is that Jesus equates the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the second is... The way we know the purpose of the sign is because Jesus warns his disciples under the very same sign. And like I said at the beginning, friends, what we see from our passage is that the cross is the great leveler of all people. And Jesus is saying to both the Pharisees and the Sadducees and his disciples and to us that all of humanity is equal before him that through the lens of the sign of Jonah, right, all people are seen by God in exactly the same way and on the same terms. The reason the sign of Jonah is given is because God is realigning the world according to his grace and not the merit of men think about how amazing this is that first, that the Pharisees and Sadducees are together they don't belong together if you can picture Karl Rove and David Axelrod on a tandem bicycle tour you sort of have the fringes these are not these are not natural allies Okay, they don't get along as you see in the rest of the Gospels. The Pharisees and the Sadducees do not share a common theology. They do not share a common class. They do not share a common commitment to the Scriptures. They are very different from one another. And yet they show up together in verse 1. Why? That's a problem that you have to think about. What is it? that has brought them together? What is the glue that has brought the Pharisees and the Sadducees together to oppose Jesus? What has become so powerful that it overpowers their natural dislike for one another to get them to lock arms as they approach Jesus? Friends, it's surprising. And it's not just surprising that they come together, but notice that Jesus equates them is that Jesus totally understands why they're together. And that's why when he warns his disciples, well, first of all, he he calls and he lumps them together as a single generation. In verse 4, he doesn't say, well, the Pharisees, you need this, and Sadducees, you need that. No, he collapses them together when he speaks to them. And then when he speaks to his disciples about them, notice in verse 6 and 11, he says, beware of the leaven singular. Of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It says the same thing in verse 11. And then in verse 12, you have Matthew telling us how the disciples understood Jesus' image about the leaven. He says, Oh, we got it finally that what Jesus was talking about was the teaching singular of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, friends, that needs to give us pause, and we need to think about that. In what sense could the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees possibly be the same? Because what Jesus is saying to his disciples is that, Despite all the superficial surface differences which were substantial between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, at their heart, at their core, they taught exactly the same thing. Now, how could that possibly be so? The Sadducees were the elites. They were in charge of the high priestly office. They basically uh, were very politically empowered. They collaborated with the Romans. They were wealthy. They were elite. They were upper class. They did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in a final judgment. They believed that this life was all there was. And they probably didn't accept any books of the Old Testament beyond the Pentateuch. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were, started as a lay movement. Their power was not political. It was their piety. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in an afterlife. They believed in a final judgment at which every human being would be evaluated by God. And they trusted in their piety to qualify them to be able to withstand that judgment. How could Jesus possibly perceive in those two groups an underlying unity such that he could say, it is one leaven, my disciples, that these two groups teach, and it's dangerous. It is dangerous. What is it? Well, I'm not going to tell you yet, I want you to remember one more thing about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There's one other time that we've seen them together in Matthew's Gospel, and that's in chapter 3, which is about four years ago. At John the Baptist's ministry, in his ministry, when he's baptizing, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come together, they come together again. And, and the fact that they're together then is very interesting, isn't it? Because John the Baptist ministry basically had, his message had basically two strands. Number one, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God is asserting his rule and his reign in the world that he has made. And number two, men aren't ready for the arrival of God. And so repentance is what he called for. And the Pharisees and Sadducees, they may, they may follow different paths but to get there, but they both end up in the same place and neither one of them submit to John's baptism. Notice the common theme, sign of Jonah, ministry of repentance. John the Baptist, ministry of repentance. John the Baptist is saying something so radical about the kingdom of heaven and Jesus is just amplifying it. What John the Baptist is saying in his ministry, friends, is that circumcision is not good enough, that Yahweh is coming, his kingdom is at hand, and guess what? Your ethnic background, your religious background, your heritage, isn't good enough to qualify you. You can't rely on your circumcision. You have to be baptized. You have to repent of trusting even in your heritage. There is no merit even for the Israelite, the most spiritually advantaged group of people on the earth. They got to go back to the beginning, and that's why he baptizes them in the River Jordan. That's the river they crossed, Israel crossed, to enter the land. And so now the story would very dramatically, John the Baptist's ministry is saying that for the kingdom of heaven, for you to be ready for the kingdom of heaven, you have to go all the way back to the beginning. There's no merit in your life. That's what they have in common. That's the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, friends. It's that from different angles with uh, slightly different theological commitments. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are one in this. They are both movements that are committed to the merit of men, committed to their own self-righteousness. They're both committed to the elevation of men, to the establishment of men's righteousness over against God as a way to gain gain. Uh, God's approval. The Sadducees think of their privilege as their merit, and the Pharisees think of their piety as their merit. They think of their religious observance, their keeping of the law. But either way, here's what they have in common. Neither one of them in their system has any room for a cross. Neither one of them has any room for confession and repentance that acknowledges that by themselves they cannot earn their way to God Now friends one of the most important implications of what Jesus says about the Pharisees and the Sadducees being together and that their teaching is one is he is saying that ultimately all teaching that is crossless is one you have two ways in the universe. The way of the cross, Jesus' ministry, and everything else. You either rely totally on the righteousness of God given as a gift through Jesus' ministry, or you rely On the righteousness of men being presented to God, which will never sustain God's scrutiny. Every other religion, this is one of the implications of what Jesus is doing here. He is pointing out to us that every path besides the path of the sign of Jonah and besides the cross is um, a path that is, despite the different costumes it may wear, despite the different religious trappings it might wear, despite what we call it, it is essentially all resolved into one option, and it is an option for no savior, no savior, no rescuer, no deliverer, to elevate the obedience of men and women and children over against God, that we don't need a savior. And then there's Jesus' sign of Jonah. Now, friends, I want you to think about that because that's very contemporary for us. I know we don't think the Pharisees and Sadducees as having anything to do with us, but friends, we are surrounded by people every day, and every other religion except Christianity is essentially a religion of a ladder. Follow the rules. Climb the ladder. Do this and be accepted. And Jesus is saying that the sign of Jonah, his ministry, is utterly opposed to this. That that approach of of elevating the merit of men is in utter opposition to his ministry and tinkers with God, plays games with God. Like we talked about last week, it makes God, if you think that your obedience can compel God's favor to you, you are treating God like he is the organ grinder's monkey at the end of your chain, and you turn the crank through your obedience, and then God rewards you with little goodies. This is what Jesus does. He equates the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but that's not enough. He's saying that the sign of Jonah is going to subvert a commitment to the merit of men, to the self-righteousness of men. But this isn't just something for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You notice he also warns his disciples in verses 5 through 12 very seriously about this, and that's amazing that's really amazing if you think about it because he issues very strong imperatives in fact in verse 6 he he warns them twice right he says watch and beware of the leaven and of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and then in verse 11 he says it again, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, why in, the earth, why in the earth would he have to warn his disciples about a passion for a crossless future, a crossless path? Why would he have to warn his disciples about it, friends? Because everyone is vulnerable to this. Every single one of us is susceptible to this. The distance between Jesus' allies and Jesus' opponents is minuscule compared to the distance between all of humanity and the cross. We're not shocked enough by this. We're not scandalized enough by this. In great measure, our understanding of what the cross entails is very shallow no matter how long we've been Christians. You notice how at the end of verse 12, uh, uh, Matthew records that the disciples understood. Did you see that? <laughs> well, we're going to see in just a few verses next week that, they, that this understanding is a work in progress. Right? Just like us. And the longer you're a Christian, the longer you're going to see that this is such a massive statement of the worth of God. Jesus says that a commitment to the merit of men is like leaven. It's like leaven. This error of elevating our achievements over to God is like leaven. It's never going to look dangerous. It's never going to look that threatening, but it's going to infect our thoughts. It's going to infect our hearts, and it will gain territory. We have a passion. Jesus is warning his disciples. We have a passion for our own merit. And the merit of men and the glory of the cross, Jesus is saying by this sign, and his warnings cannot inhabit the same space. The cross is the great leveler of people. And Jesus is saying it's a very great danger. Now, friends, we're going to see later on in chapter 16 that when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then Jesus begins to pour content into what that means, that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, and that content is going to require the death of Jesus, Peter is going to immediately come back and say, no, 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 that's bad. And do you remember what Jesus says to Peter? Uh, Some of the most shocking words you'll ever hear in the Bible get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on those of men. In other words, Peter, when you think that there is a crossless path to Messiahship, you are thinking in a man centered way. You're thinking in terms of the merit of men, and it doesn't exist. And so, friends, What the Pharisees and the Sadducees are guilty of is what is very much alive in our own hearts, this commitment to our own merit. We long to be the heroes of our own stories. Let me tell you how this shows up in my life. This morning, well, it's something that happened yesterday and something that happened this morning. This morning, I was sitting in my study, and I looked up at the bookshelf, and I happened to look at the shelf where I keep uh, biographies. And I looked at the biographies. I looked at the spines of uh, these books, of these uh, great figures from history, and particularly history in the church. And you know what I immediately did? This may not connect with you. If it does, great. If it doesn't, it's just pastoral confession time. So I looked at the spines, I thought about all these people. Augustine, uh, George Whitfield, Adoniram Judson, uh, William Tyndale, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, John Newton, just a lot of them, Calvin. And I thought immediately, you know what my first thought was? I stink. I thought no one would ever write a biography of me. I began to think of all the disappointments All the failures, all the mistakes. See, now this all happens in like 15 seconds. Maybe you can relate. All this stuff, I, I started having all these flashbacks of things that I started to characterize as wrong turns and fatal errors and huge, just huge failures. And what came up to me before I careened off the side of the mountain and crashed in flames was Psalm 139, verse 16. I didn't summon it. God summoned it. And that's the verse where David says, and they were all written for me, every single one of them, all the days of my life. They were written in your book before there was even one of them. And I realized that what God was saying there is, listen, Mike, I'm your biographer. I wrote your story. You are not the hero of your story. I am the hero of your story. Your story has room for only one person's glory, and it's not yours, it's my son's. The merit of men is not how the world is to be aligned. It's not how our lives are to be aligned. Friends, a God who is willing to go to the cross for us is a God we cannot control. And when we think that our obedience or our deeds can somehow compel this God to respond and give us what we want, we are diminishing him and elevating ourselves. And you say, I don't do that. I don't try to control God. Really? Is that really true that you don't try to control God, that you don't try to manipulate Him, that you don't think of your your sanctification as the way of being more assured of God's favor toward you, that you don't think that, that you can compel God's favor by your obedience, that you never have that struggle? You don't ever place yourself as the hero of your own stories? Friends, think about your dreams and think about your disappointments in life. Think about the dreams that you have. When you're older, okay? When you're older, you usually have fewer dreams and more disappointments. And when you're younger, you usually have more dreams and fewer disappointments. Did I say that backwards? I meant when you're... You know, there's so many words that happen on Sunday, sometimes I need to listen more carefully to what comes out of my mouth. I apologize. When you're old, you have fewer dreams and more disappointments. When you're younger, you have more dreams and fewer disappointments, okay? Okay? usually. But what were your dreams about? Who was the hero of your dreams? Was it you? You know, I have this, I have this tendency, and this is again as a confession. Um, sometimes when I listen to a music, and the electric guitar solo is especially good. Not by any deliberate act that I'm conscious of, I suddenly in my mind's eye picture myself playing the solo. <laughs> so yesterday we were in the car, I heard Reelin in the Years by Steely Dan and I immediately was playing that solo in my mind. Now it's a silly thing, right? But you know what's really going on there, is I, I want to be the hero. I don't play the guitar, but I want to be the hero. And In my dreams, and in our dreams, so often we're the center of the story. And that's why our disappointments are often so painful. Because as you get older, there are a lot of disappointments, and the question you have to ask yourself, friend, is why are you disappointed? Who's at the center of the dreams and who's at the center of your disappointments? Is it you? If it is, then that means that you think the way the Pharisees and the Sadducees think, friends. That means that the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees has gripped your imagination and your heart. And Jesus offers you instead the sign of Jonah, the sign that says that even though you don't have merit before God, God gives the merit of his son for you in the incarnation and crucifixion so that your judgment is borne away and then gives the merit of his son back to you in justification and adoption and ultimately glorification and you are vindicated in the end, but you are not vindicated by your merit. You're vindicated by the merit of Jesus Christ, the merit of another. There is no room for the cross of Christ and the glory of men to inhabit the same space. That's what we're to read from the sign of Jonah. a God who is willing to die on the cross for the eternal welfare of the sinners who have rebelled against him. is a God we cannot manipulate. He's a God we can't tinker with. He's a God we can't fiddle with. No little minor adjustment in our lifestyle or in our decisions will be sufficient for him. Obviously, if his evaluation of our condition was such that nothing less than the substitutionary death of his son would make it possible for us to live with him and enjoy fellowship with him, then there is nothing by definition that I can bring or that can be produced out of my life that would ever be good enough or holy enough or eternal enough on its own to rescue me and so the sign of Jonah levels me, at the, puts me on the same level as every other human being before God. I live by mercy. I live not by my own merit, but exclusively by the merit of Jesus Christ. There is no room for my merit and the glory of Christ to inhabit the same space. And friends, you know, there's a corollary here, and the corollary is this, that if God, If Jesus is a Savior who observed no boundaries in what he was willing to give up of his own for us, then that means that he will observe no boundaries in what he might ask or call us to give up for him. Have you thought about that? That means there is because there was no limit on what he gave. The corollary of that is there is no limit now on what he may ask us to give. That's what the sign of Jonah teaches us. And finally, it's the sign, the sign of Jonah that reads us. That's the power of the sign of Jonah. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that the cross, Jesus' ministry, of a willing death for his people is a sign not only that we're to read and understand, but it is a sign and we have to understand that reads us like every other word of God. The word of the cross reads us. We think... (laughs) Listen, you and I are exactly the same. We look at that, we look at the cross, and we think that we're reading it. When in fact, what's happening is that cross is reading every single one of our hearts this morning. You know, that's what God says is true about His word in Hebrews chapter 4, right? He says, he says the word of God, this is true, it's true about every word of God, it's particularly true the word of the cross, right? The word of God, remember this, Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. The Word of God is living and active. Sounds like a person, doesn't it? The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. It gets in and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's amazing. We read the Word of God, that verse is saying. But the Word of God, much more fundamentally, is reading us. And then the next verse. And there is no creature hidden from His sight. God's sight. Everything is naked and exposed before the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Friends, the word of the cross is a sign that is reading every single heart in this room. God knows where your resistance is, friend. He knows where your secret sins are. He knows the truth about your record. He knows much more fundamentally how you are responding to the news of His Son. He's reading you right now. He's reading you through the sign of the cross. You are not standing over the cross You're standing under it, just like I am. And God sees where we are. What is he reading, friend, in your heart? What is your heart showing him about what you think about your merit? what you think about your obedience, what you think about your duties before God, what you think about the work of His Son and the goodness and greatness of His love that He would send Christ, what you think about the cross and your need for a Savior. What you think about the willingness of a God who would send his son for you, who would humble himself, this God, the maker of heaven and earth, that he would allow his son to be buried, not allow, but even call and plan for his son to be buried in the heart of the earth he made. And then rise again for the salvation of sinners. What is God reading on your heart right now about those wondrous deeds of Christ? friends let's close by just looking in one place look at verse 4 I think these are the most chilling words in the whole passage so he left them and departed now I know what that means is he left them and departed I know that's what that means he walked away. What I want to close with is by asking you to think about how significant that is. I want you to feel an urgency this morning. I've prayed that God would give you a sense of urgency this morning. And I want those words to stick with you. He left them and departed. Well, what else would he have done? Well, why didn't he plead with them? Why didn't he say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest? Why didn't he stick around and try to say to them, hey, I beg you, be reconciled to God. Why did Jesus Christ walk away? They didn't walk away from him. He left them. Because they were playing games with him. Now, here's how that connects with our lives. None of us should assume that we have tomorrow. Don't assume that it is safe to rubberneck the gospel, rubberneck Christ, and drive by and live your life knowing where you can find Him when you decide to get really serious about God. It is possible friends, that Jesus won't be there when you come back. Because the mercy of God is up to the mercy of God, not the merit of men. And so I beg you, be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. What more can He do for you than the sign of Jonah? What more could He possibly show you? Than the sign of Jonah. Let's pray. Lord, it's sobering. It's sobering to me. Um, There's a great part of my heart that would just rather preach a happy message. Everyone smiles and I smile and we all laugh and we walk and we have warm hearts and walk out of the room and music is ringing in our ears. That's what I want to do. That's what I want to do because I want my life to be easy and I want people's lives to be easy. But the sign of Jonah is about joy, not shallow happiness, and it's about safety, eternal safety. And so I pray that you would take your word and grant that it finds good soil in our hearts and that your spirit would nurture it and bear fruit through it that would last for all eternity. For your name's sake.